Here we go. Today is Sunday, January 22nd, 2017, and this is episode 182 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hello, Jerry. How are you, kind sir, this fine evening? Super duper. How are you? I am doing well. Sunday comes by way too quick, it seems. Seriously. But here we are. Sorry. Slow that down, by the way. I know. Sorry we didn't. Record last week, by the way. I know. Well, I was um, I was busy moving the site to a new host because uh, mm-hmm. the the server that I had it on was falling over regularly due to the load. So wow, I had to had to make a move. And I I think we heard some folks were having some weird subscription update issues, but us telling folks to just resubscribe wouldn't be very helpful because if they hear this podcast they've already they've already figured it out figured that out right hmm. so so for those of you who had problems i apologize those were related to the server move the uh, the rss feed that there were some move things that didn't go very well so but hey you know bigger and better server now that's right indeed indeed and uh and this is a political free show, so we won't talk about anything else that's been going on this week that, you know, is craziness. Make InfoSec great again. That's all I'll say. <sighs> yep. And we're not talking about football, which apparently there's some sort of big football thing in Atlanta where you and I both are. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I don't, the I don't family know. was upstairs watching that, so. You know, my entire social media feed right now is politics and, and sports ball, and it's. I'm just going to hide my office. Life is almost not worth living. (laughs) But hey, let's do a show. All right. So just before uh, we get into the show, a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So the first story we have tonight comes from Security Week, and the title is Cyber Threat Intelligence Shows Majority of Cybercrime is Not Sophisticated. And, you know... They wrote the title so well, you almost don't actually have to read the article. Right? Well, that's what we call clickbait, I think. Well, no, because clickbait is sort of that whole, you won't believe number seven. Right, right. Like right. there's no reason to click on it because you already get the point. Mm. Um, so anyway, the, they're, they're, they're basically, the, the author here is saying that if you look at the sources of threat intelligence, and I guess this person is some kind of threat analyst with, Which, oh, chief I mean, security strategist, right? To be fair, the threat intelligence they're talking really is more kind of like just summary of breach data. It's more like Come on, information. threat intelligence I... can be whatever we want it to be. <laughs> Ain't that the sad truth? <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, um, they're they're saying you know despite despite all of the discussion about you know the advanced attacks, uh, people are continuing to be owned by ransomware. And you know, they give a little bit of uh, guidance, which, you know, basically if you, let's see, if you set your anti-malware software to scan all email attachments, that will help catch most malicious attachments, which, you know, 
I'm not sure where this guy's been at, but that's not what I've been seeing. Um, anyway. Um, what, what do you mean that's not what you've been seeing? That phishing isn't the, the start of most no, breaches? No, no, that, that your anti-malware solution can catch most malicious oh, attachments. Yeah. yeah. Well, to be fair, he does talk about having dedicated anti-phishing capabilities deployed as well. That That's true. That's true. And, 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 you know, to be fair as well, I think where he's going with this is a lot of folks don't think about the fact that, like, Word documents with macros enabled could be a problem and that sort of thing. So I think this is more a think broader with your border MTA technologies than it is, you know, old school thinking. Yeah, fair enough. The way the way I read it. I mean, but maybe I'm just feeling generous today. Well, I, I think you're right. He does he does go on to talk about uh, enabling the the GPO settings to disable uh, macros in my in Microsoft Office documents. Yeah, so Office 2016 and Office 2013 both have some really good functionality for that sort of thing. Yep, and um, and then they then he goes on to talk about how um, exploit kits is also a very common problem. Now, exploit kits isn't the you know, that's not the end of the line, right? This is more the delivery mechanism. But the point is that most of the exploit kit vulnerable, uh, most of the exploits the vo- the um, exploit kits use. Well, that was a tongue twister. Uh, are old, right? They're not. They're not new, and so they're going after known vulnerabilities that have patches available. They're not right. using zero days, right? Yeah. So if you if you keep your stuff patched, you're pretty far ahead of the game with respect to exploit kits. Yeah, especially things like Flash. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then credential management again. No particular surprise there. Obviously. Password managers, unique passwords, getting people not to reuse passwords. Although, you know, I I suspect, although this is probably going to be changing, right? But a lot of organizations have that, you know, every 90-day password change requirement. And and so, you know, I'm I'm not convinced that, you know, your LinkedIn password or your eBay password or whatever password got stolen is, is likely to be one that, uh, that you've also used at your company because of the the requirement to continually change them. Yeah, agreed. I, I think that that sort of piece of advice is more for non corporate right. environment reuse. Is is the way I've seen it. it if you, unless you're in an environment that just doesn't force any password changes at all. Well, but that was where I was going because you know the the uh, NIST. I'm going to say it right so I don't get any more hate mail. Right, NIST. Oh, you still you'll still get hate mail. But thanks for saying that. Right, that's true. NIST, you know, recently released their updated password guidance, uh, and and recommends against the uh, the the, uh, the ninety day password changes. Well, and that that's something we talked about on the show. I don't know, a couple long months time ago. ago yeah. uh, some controversy on there, where, where someone was arguing, hey, forcing people to change passwords. Uh, and rotate passwords leads to weaker passwords, which in a microcosm I get, but that doesn't help you in a world where password databases are getting leaked and, and cracked. And and so you, you're fixing one problem, but you're opening yourself up to another, right? You're solving one risk, but incorporating a different risk. So I mean, this goes back to fun, fundamentally, passwords are probably the ba- a bad solution, but it's a solution we're, we're struggling with right now. But so I'm still on the camp of at least rotating passwords gives me some chance of when, you know, nine months from now, my my password for LinkedIn gets leaked. It's not the same one I'm using in my corporate environment. Not me personally, but you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. F- fair enough. 
And they, they, he does he does mention you know passer managers, which we're both pretty big advocates of. And actually, he mentions that not only should you you invest a, a password manager for your employees, but you should attempt to license it so they can use it for for personal purposes too. Which I think is a great idea. But when I was reading this article and thinking about this, that's great, except for my assuming I'm in a Windows environment with AD, and assuming most of my passwords are tied back into my AD credentials, my initial login to my desktop doesn't necessarily work well with a password manager. I could pull it up on my phone and sort of try to type it as I read it, but it's not the same convenience as once I'm in the operating system and I've got a password manager that I can do copy-paste from. Yeah, absolutely. So... I don't know. I, I'm almost, I'm almost at like you know at a smart card or a, or a two factor off to my initial AD login, and then go password manager, and I I think I'd feel pretty comfortable with that. Yep, I would agree. Although it, that that gets interesting with disconnected, disconnected. It does. Laptops. It does. Um, and you know I I'm a little ignorant of the current technology of exactly how you go about solving some of those problems, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's Supposedly, some of the smart card technologies can work off net. Certainly, a two-factor token with some sort of rotating code would have a lot more challenge. Yep. But all right, so uh, extortion is a uh, is is their next their next big hitter, um, in which I suppose ransomware really falls kind of into that extortion bucket. But you know, we've seen we've seen a lot of this with the you know that uh, was it for DD4S, you know the the DDoS. Uh, ransom uh, threats, I guess. Yeah. And, and a bunch of other things, you know, and, and they don't really say here, but uh, there's, there's a lot of, especially in those types of venues, there's a lot of peril in paying up because you, you end up getting a reputation. You know, whereas with, with ransomware, you know, you, you often have your back against the wall. And, and in fact, a lot of times it's just kind of opportunistic that you got it in the first place. You know, some of these, some of these, bigger extortion campaigns, you know, they're, they're specifically targeting organizations and you don't want to be the one with the, the name <laughs> that, that pays. So, um, yeah. And who knows? I mean, we, we've got another story we talk about, uh, on tonight's show where some of the ransomware oh, is starting yes. to fight gangs are starting to fight amongst themselves and, and it might be changing the equation of whether or not it's worth paying. That's very true. Although, a little, little, little foreshadow. Oh, yeah, little although that might be a narrow, kind of a narrow edge case. But and then he talks a little bit about uh, technical. Are you pain. saying? Are you saying I'm narrow? Yes. Are you saying I, I my, my, my views of things are edge cases? Are you saying I amuse you like a clown? I make you let. Well, sorry, wrong Wait, movie. Go on. Let's let's see what's the word myopic. Oh yeah, that's the one. Um, so th- he talks a little bit about technical debt. Although I I didn't like that the technical debt was really couched in terms of. Uh, application development, right? I think technical debt can exist in many different contexts in your IT environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I would I would if you read the article I would you know keep keep a little broader perspective on that point. But I think it is a very important point, by the way, that we, we often get pretty deep in the hole and it's difficult to get out. Well I think fundamentally his point is is well taken, which is that often we get caught up with the sexy modern edge case threats, you know, of Nathan nation state level actors when, you know, we're not getting the basics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
All right. So moving on to our next story, which comes from actually we got we got a three in a row from Data Breach today. And the first one is uh, titled "A New In-Depth Anal- Analysis of Anthem Breach." So as you probably remember, back in 2015, it was announced that Anthem had a breach of almost 80 million customer records. And it was attributed to a nation state, which, you know, I think everybody understood is China or understood to be China. uh, Because Mandiant was the one who uh, (laughs) investigated (laughs) I, I'm, I'm it seems like you're you're implying something there, Jerry. I don't know what it might be. Well, maybe, maybe there's a current trend of saying if a nation state was behind your breach, you know, it's a little less bad because how are you possibly able to defend against a nation state, right? Well, that's right, and uh-huh. and interestingly, uh, in despite the severity of this uh, this incident, a number of a number of state attorneys general actually launched an investigation into the breach and concluded that it, in fact, was a nation state. They didn't say which one, at least publicly. And uh, and and I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say they they didn't fine uh, or th- they didn't punish Anthem any more than they had already incurred uh, you know, damage from. So. Uh, Anthem had incurred about $260 million worth of, of uh, costs between the, you know, the, the forensic costs. Uh, they, they spent $150 million on security improvements, $31 million to notify their customers of the breach, and $112 million to provide credit protection. By the way, I was, I was thinking about that a little bit. So there were 80 million people. Yeah. $112 million for credit protection. That's like, what, a dollar and 20 cents per person? Hey, when you buy in bulk, man. Uh, no. I was, I I, was thinking I caught the $2.5 million to engage expert consultants. Oh, yeah. That was Mandiant, That's, right? That's Well, you know, I don't know. Well, they, I they actually say, say it in here. Well, I, I get that, that Mandiant was part of it, but what I'm saying is that's maybe not all of it. I mean, typically, Mandiant will do a lot of the initial investigation and recommendations, but often I would imagine, I'm just guessing here that that 2.5 million is, is it E&Y or, uh, you know, one of the big four consulting firms doing additional work. Maybe is so. my guess. Maybe so. If it were E&Y, I'd expect it to be a much bigger number, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm purely speculating there, but I don't think it was just breach investigation and, you know, it was 2.5 million. That's wow. Yeah. Fair enough. If that's true, I'm I'm going into breach investigation. Yeah, fair, fair I would enough. have done it for two point two million. Let me just put it that way. Well, you know, I don't think they really are in the mood to shop around at the and, and by the way, that's I think part of the problem with No, it's with very true. It's, response it's, for companies. Right. It, it, it's you know, when you need an ambulance, you're not gonna start shopping price shopping. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So so anyway, uh the the, the net is it was it was called a nation state attack. Um, that in the uh, that they effectively the, the, this report from the attorneys general effectively said that Anthem had reasonable security p- controls in place. They um, I think the, the exact wording I don't have it in front of me, but was something to the effect of 
you know, it was what you would expect companies their size to to have in place. So really not a lot of detail what that about what that is. But they did go on to mention they've made improvements. For instance, they implemented two-factor authentication to get in from remote, you know, remote access. Um, they implemented a privilege management system. They, uh, they did some type of in, a significant enhancement to their log monitoring. It's, it doesn't really say exactly what they did, but... Um, that 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 probably was not cheap. Um, let's see what else. What other? Uh, they, well, they they did mention, by the way, that I guess once the um, once the breach was detected, they ceased all remote access, which I thought was pretty interesting. Probably a good idea. Uh, they they mentioned they had. Well, it, it depends on the on the avenue of a, of you know attack and the way that the bad guy was coming to the door. Yeah, well, they did say that the initial the initial infection or the initial compromise happened through phishing, through a phishing right. attack, uh, which is not surprising at all. And, no. and but they did say that they um, they had compromised something like fifty user IDs, and then uh, ninety systems, and then they eventually got to a data warehouse. So I know probably something like a. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that. Shutting down remote access for your employees is helpful if that's the only way the bad guy's coming in. But often, to maintain persistence, as soon as somebody gets in the door, they'll set up some sort of reverse shell that's able to exfiltrate out through your firewalls from the inside, and they can come back over that that shell. Yes, that tunnel. So anyway, I do. Yep. We're doing something. We shut down the the remote access. Well, I, I have. Hey, we're doing something. Okay. It, it, it's an interesting thing because I, you know, and I think you probably have had a similar experience. Since since we've been on the podcast, I've had a number of people over time ask, you know, come to me and say, hey, we're completely compromised. What should we do? And, you know, the, the problem is this is such a complicated answer. You really have to have someone... Yeah. There, who's very familiar with? I mean, I love to like, you know, give you the the five. You know, here's the five things you you need to go do, right? But that you can't. That's <laughs> that's just not reasonable. Yeah, figure out what they did and undo it. <laughs> figure out where they're coming from, right? And shut it down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's incredibly complicated. It's just why companies like Mandiant exist. And I mean, we rip on Mandiant, but their employees are incredibly good and strong we you know we we tease manny because of their executives in interest in sort of being yeah, part of the blame shifting i'll put it that way yeah the politics the political yeah. aspect i mean i think but i, the, but I have the, a lot of respect for the guys on the ground at yeah, Manny. absolutely they have a well-earned reputation yeah and uh you know the other thing i thought was interesting about this um that that they talked about was that uh, you know, you mentioned they had reasonable measures in place, but they found a whole bunch of areas to improve. Yes. And they conducted a, a pen test exercise, which is great. And, of course, they talk about the nation state. But uh, quoting from the article, the team determined with a high degree of confidence the identity of the attacker and concluded with a medium degree of confidence that the attacker was acting on behalf of a foreign government. Notably, the exam team also advised that previous attacks associated with this foreign government has not resulted in personal information being transferred to non-state actors. So I thought that was an interesting thing to point out. 
Well, I think the 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 reason I interpreted them specifically calling that out was that the the data that was stolen probably wouldn't be used at some point for fraud purposes, you know, for commercial fraud purposes. It was yeah. it was probably more for some I mean uh, Assuming this story, I mean, let's just let's just go with it, right? Assuming the the story that this is that particular nation state actor with you know that particular motive, the idea being, whoever whoever contracted having that data stolen is going to use it for some kind of intelligence purpose, not to go and and uh, you know get get fillings on on your insurance. So, indeed. Um, but so, you know, some of the takeaways were were interesting. Yeah, I, I, and and by the way, I wanna, I kind of wanna eat my words a little bit because I, th- I think at some point in the past, I've, I've said I'd be really surprised if, if a HIPAA breach ever, you know, ever was found not to be in compliance with the HIPAA rules, right? And and now, OCR, as far as I can tell, the the, the Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights doesn't appear like it was part of this investigation. Right, so they may have something yet to come, right? But so far, you know, th- this is kind of um, going against what I what I thought we would see, because of the conclusion that they had adequate and appropriate defenses in place, and it Correct. was a nation state. They couldn't have stopped. Right, right, yeah. and in fact, they in here they I, I, I lost the which, quote. by the way, I I don't agree with that sentiment at all. I think you know, but we'll. I think it's very dangerous to start saying, "Well, there's nothing you could have done because it was a nation state." Uh, I think that's dangerous. I think that's a that's a defeatist attitude. Yeah, I can't find can't find the quote at the moment, but they there was a quote in this article that basically said, uh, you, "Insurers and um, and and private industry can't expect to defend against nation states. Governments have to step up." Right and defend. I, I don't. I, yeah, yeah, it's, it's here. Quote: Insurers and regulators alone cannot there stop governments assisting cyber attacks. Uh, cannot stop foreign government assisted cyber attacks. Uh, the United States government needs to take steps to prevent and hold foreign governments and other foreign actors accountable for cyber attack on insurers, much as the president did in response to Russian government sponsored cyber hacking in our recent presidential election. I, I get where they're going with that, but that really feels like a lawyery lawyery way of saying. We did our best, but there's nobody who could have stood up to this, so don't throw the book at us. I, I understand, but I still come back to, the, to saying the techniques that are used that we're talking about here, a phishing technique and, and account compromise and whatnot, are not – nothing I've seen in this report yet shows me this is exclusively within the domain of a nation-state capability. No, probably not. It's not a Stuxnet. It's not a, you know, and and this is the type of attack that we see every day that we do have to defend against. So this is dangerous in the sense of throwing your hands up in the air going, well, you know, we're just going to get popped. So, you know, just the way it's going to be. But I think there's also some politics being played here on the flip side of this in terms of don't fine us and, you know, PR and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, layer eight and nine level problems yep that's right so uh so let's move on to our next uh, story from data breach today and this one is four hundred seventy-five thousand dollar hipaa penalty breach or penalty for tardy breach notification so the the story here is a 
a company called um, Presence Health in Chicago lost eight the paper records. So paper, this isn't even electronic records. This is paper records. But I thought it was relevant to bring up uh, for 800 people, right? So so pretty small number. It exceeds the 500 limit, right? So there's a 500 person limit of what's reportable to HHS under the, under the HIPAA r- rules. 800 people, and they were fined for uh, for not reporting within you know, what they call a timely manner, right? So apparently this happened in uh, in October of 2013, and uh, they were no- they this health company notified the Office of Civil Rights on January 31st, and so that was found to be you know, just extraordinarily extraordinarily long and. Um, not not within uh, what's what they call timely notification. So um, the point I wanted to bring up is that if if you have a if if you operate under the the auspices of some regulator, a lot of regulators have this rule now, and even in fact the SEC with with public companies has this to some extent, right? It's not quite not quite to this extent, right? But there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of regulations now have a requirement for reporting breaches in a timely manner. And you, I think we're starting to see these regulators putting some, some teeth into meeting that requirement. And, um, you know, so, so the, the problem here, I think is that a lot, just having been around the industry a long time, companies really like to look at a breach the ten ways from Sunday, before they will go and report it. Sure. And and the problem, I mean, you know, it, which by the way makes sense, right? Because we saw with I forget which company it was right now, uh, there was a, a a pretty high profile breach of you know let's say it was two million records, and after pro, after some analysis, it was significantly less. Right. right, and that's why yeah. I think that's why companies really want to to understand, and legal counsel will typically provide that guidance. You know, you really want to understand what the actual facts are, mm-hmm. because it's really difficult to unring that bell once you once you right. ring it. Right. Yep. And but this that kind of flies in the face, especially if you have some some type of a complicated uh, breach that flies in the face of the the mandate to do timely notification. Yeah. And it could be just because we're covering a couple of these stories commonly, but it really seems like uh, OCR is not playing when it comes to HIPAA violations. They seem quite intense on finding. They, 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 they definitely are. Well, they're, I think the, the thing that changed recently was the, I think it was um, end of 2015, maybe early 2016, they, they passed that new HIPAA mega rule. Mm-hmm. Which which basically was a lot of clarification that had had always been forthcoming, and they finally provided it, and so now that was the you know the, the teeth behind HIPAA. I'm I'm glad I don't work in healthcare. <laughs> and admittedly, it's it's a an area I, I'm not a HIPAA expert by any sense of the imagination. That's true. So it's it's an area I'm a little little weak in. But they do seem you know pretty pretty frequently to be finding people. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of a lot of companies fall in, in scope of HIPAA. So, 
Uh, moving on to our next story. This also, again, comes from Data Breach today. Title is Insurer Slapped with $2.2 million HIPAA Settlement. So, uh, as, I was, as I was saying. Yes. yes. So this, uh, this story here, a Puerto Rican insurance company lost a thumb drive, USB drive, in 2011 with, with just over 2,000, uh, the records of 2,000 people. So not a That's huge... Yeah. One expensive thumb drive. <laughs> it's right. Not a huge um uh amount of data, right? But but it is a pretty significant find and here's why, right? I mean, the, the obviously the data wasn't encrypted on the USB drive, otherwise it wouldn't have been a reportable breach. Uh however, um this the, the insurance company called Map Mapfree or Map Mapfrey, I don't know exactly how to say it, M A P F R E apparently had made some um, some assertions to the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, about where they were at with their uh, the, you know, their HIPAA control program. And they um, they actually weren't there. They they didn't meet their commitments. Uh, they didn't have controls in place that, that they had said. They apparently hadn't performed mandate man, the mandated risk assessments and um you know implemented the finding you know the the corrective actions from those risk assessments and so on and so forth and so because of all of that uh they OCR is finding them to 2.2 million dollars so i would say that this is kind of like the you know the last one Th- these are relatively small breaches and in the absence of you know kind of the I'm not going to call it malfeasance, right? But just not being on top of the the ball, <laughs> right? They uh, they're getting fined, right? So, yeah. and, and, and this again goes to if you are part of a regulated industry, and your regulator says, you know, you need to do X by Y date, or you go to them and you say, you know, I'm going to do X by Y date. Well, you damn well better do it. Yeah, yeah, they're serious. They they mean it. Yeah, so this is interesting because at the end of the day, this fine is because they did not put in place fast enough what they said they were going to do. Uh, yeah, on the time on the timeline, yeah. and you know, I I don't know, I I am not that familiar with the OCR as as much as I am with other regulators, but they probably would have done well to keep them updated on what their plans were. Well, it could also be that potentially the the company. Might have maybe oh I don't know lied. Well, I <laughs> I didn't want to say that, but it, if you read between <laughs> the lines, that's right. Either way, what they said they were going to do in the time they were going to do it, they got caught not doing right. for whatever reason. Right. Don't and do that. Two point mean... two million. Now, what's interesting though is think about this for a moment. Is that really? ultimately solving the problem. I mean, it, it sends a message to somebody else. But for this particular company, that $2.2 million is probably going to come out of uh, somebody's budget. And would that money have been better spent on actually implementing better controls? I don't know. And that's that's a whole different debate for a different day. And uh, I'm, I certainly don't want the OCR mandating you know, fines to be spent on, <laughs> on you know, cybersecurity solutions. That's all sorts of pain. But it's, it's an interesting question. Right, because they, the problem was they didn't do what they were supposed to do in a certain period of time. It could have been budgetary, could have been they just weren't convinced this was an issue. Could have been somebody didn't have the right staff. Who knows? Right? There's a whole bunch of reasons things don't get done. Yep. 
and now they're they've got 2.2 million less to do it with. That's right. Which you know ultimately will will probably be passed on to their customers. Well, indeed. <laughs> how how else would they? Yeah, you know, it's, it's 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 very unlikely to come out of the shareholders. <laughs> just, just saying. It's true. Um, so uh, so next uh, next up is from Krebs on security, and the title here is "Extortionists Wipe Thousands of Database Vic- Victims Who Pay Get Stiffed." So this is um this has actually been banging around the internet for a couple of years now, right? And here's the story: there's these crazy NoSQL databases like Mongo, MongoDB, and some others are growing in popularity. But one now, of the now things, what, what, why do you say they're crazy? Um, well, I'll explain why they're crazy. Right? They're okay. crazy because they are. Uh, they're pretty simplistic, right? And one of the reasons people really like setting them up is that not only are they they, they fairly powerful in what they can do, and they're easy to set up, uh, but but a re- one of the reasons they're so easy to set up is they they often have, uh, particularly by default, pretty weak permissions, right? And so what what ends up happening and and has happened an unfortunate number of times especially in the context of like cloud computing, companies are setting these databases up in, you know, in let's say AWS or Azure or, you know, name your cloud provider and, and, you know, filling it up with, with data to do some kind of analysis on and unaware that the, that the database is just kind of out there flapping in the wind, right? That anybody who connects to it can, can have their way with it. Well, so this is like the database equivalent of Chinese IoT devices. Very much so. <laughs> very, very much so. <laughs> right. Um, and and so what what's happened over time? And and I, I mean we've, I think it was Chris Vickery was the guy who was uh, looking at this six or eight months or maybe even a year ago. He was he was running around chasing after MongoDB. Anyway. Um, these databases are pretty easy to find on Shodan, right? You can you can look them up and you can kind of see that the types of tables that are yeah connected. the vulnerable databases are easy to find, not just the database itself. You can very quickly figure out which ones are vulnerable. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And so so um, the the thing that happened here was, and the reason this has come to light was somebody was kind of trolling Shodan and looking just doing their normal trolling looking for these MongoDB instances and noticed that most of them, the, the actual uh, tables were were kind of all being consistently, they were all consistently named. Like before, apparently they were all sorts of different names based on however the person set it up. But now they all contained like one of three or four different things like, you know, read me, you know, important or I forget the the file names. Uh, but anyway, the the person looked at, looked at those and found that they're ransom notes, you know, with a with an email address, uh, you know, Bitcoin address, and a you know, and a ransom demand. And apparently, uh, I think uh, I don't know exactly how many there were, but there were fifty two thousand publicly accessible MongoDB ba- uh, databases on the internet, according to Shodan. And as far as we know, most of those have actually been ransomed. And I mean, we yeah, 
unrelated to this particular story, or at least not in this story, somebody else on Twitter was saying that they popped one of these up, and the time to live was 18 hours before it got popped. Wow. So it's it's probably a, some kind of automated attack. But what's mm-hmm. what's interesting is, in kind of like the, uh, the the title of the story says, people who um, you know whose data is is being encrypted or or actually stolen. Apparently, what's what's happening is the attackers are downloading the data, right? So they're copying the data off of the database and then they actually just delete it, right? So they're not encrypting it in place. They're just deleting it. You don't have the data anymore. They leave a file with with information to get it back. But what's happening is there's multiple actors in play, right? And so so I come along and I, uh, you know, I, I erase Bob's, MongoDB and I leave a love note, right? And then you come by later, erase my note and leave your own because your tool is just automated and it just just deletes my stuff and puts your own stuff. And now the person who you know, Bob doesn't know who he goes to you and you're like, ah, can't help you. <laughs> but give me the ransom first anyway. But give yeah right. But yeah you, exactly. But you don't know that he nobody knows that until you try to pay right. And right. so so these people are being stiffed right. And and by the way, it's not even it's not entirely clear. Even if your system hadn't been compromised by multiple a- actors in succession, if you would get the data back anyway, right? There's uh, as as far as we can tell, there there's been very few, if any, of these victims that have actually been able to get their their data back despite having paid. And you know, this is one this is one of those cases where we've really got to get our head around the you know the new technology right that that the new sexy technology that people are deploying and and MongoDB again is one of those where it's super easy really lightweight you know you, you don't have to be a you know a data a DBA to set it up and and so which by I, the way is supposedly the promise of computing well it make is it easier and more accessible and you know, it absolutely but is, but it, we is have it, to understand the problem with that, right? I do. I, I agreed. So, is it someone coming upon the MongoDB, you know, source code folks to say, "Hey, let's add a you must change your default password"? <laughs> to first, you know, log into it first time. I don't know. I mean, well, that's, that's what we're seeing. I mean, if if you think about it in the context of um, you know of the the cheap Chinese webcams and stuff, right? That's kind of how that's being addressed. You know, yeah, but it's such a point solution to it. You know, I guess what I'm saying is that we fundamentally still aren't baking this sort of thought process into uh, all of our development. It's 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 often like we're after after a bunch of stuff gets owned, we solve that particular point problem. We're not so we're we're treating the symptom, not necessarily the disease. I guess is what well, I'm trying to say. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. We need we need a we need a process that vets this you know vets new technology that we want to use and figures out okay what's the what's the right safe deployment model for this well i mean are we going back to the county password inspector who's going to help with that i mean no i think it's up i mean unfortunately as it stands it's kind of up to each organization to figure that out for themselves or or i mean the county password inspector is (laughs) i mean I'm, i'm just saying (laughs) <laughs> well, I I guess why I'm struggling with this is it's sort of that whole 
I don't want a centralized government run solution to this problem. No, I I don't, I don't either, but this is, uh, this again, I think is why organizations have to have standards, right? Right. And, and, you know, most organizations should probably have a standard that says, you know, your, you know, a database, because one of the victims, by the way, and it's not in this story, it was reported several weeks ago, um, it was a cancer, some kind of cancer institute, and it was a bunch of cancer related, you know, um, research that was in a in a database and apparently i guess had no backups and and got deleted and um you know and there was a terrible horrible tragedy right but but again this is why we have to have standards right we agreed but you you know the upside and the downside of these being so easy to deploy is that you're probably going to see this pop up more and more as shadow it I, you're absolutely right, and I'm sure this is actually so, what's going on, right? I I I would bet you that because ponderous of these are shadow IT. IT security gets in the way with all their silly standards, and we just need to get this up this week and let's get it going. Come on, we got stuff to do. Wait, no, well, I, I'm serious. I mean, uh, you're, this is... you're right, but put it behind a firewall. I mean, <laughs> why? That that means I've got to file more paperwork and wait for them to approve it. I can go to Amazon and have it up in, a, in no, no, twenty I mean, minutes. Put it behind an Amazon firewall. Uh, look you expect me to know security man i'm just a i'm just a guy trying to get my job done well we can either solve this or we're gonna have keep having our databases deleted i agree i but i'm being intentionally difficult because this is what i think is exactly what's happening it is what's happening is is but but the the people who are setting this up are not going to security there i mean that i i think the average company thinks of the cloud as the policy-free zone. Sure. Right? Like, well, crap, we don't have to we don't have to deal with those assholes in IT security, right. you know, and get our crap into the, in the in the data center. We're Absolutely. just going to slap our credit card down and buy some Amazon. And off we go. Because in the past, the fundamental way to control this was the firewall. Right. And and you know, you still had to get through the firewall if you wanted to stand up a new service. So that was always the last sanity check. That doesn't exist anymore when we have this easy cloud infrastructure. Right. And and I think this is, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. I think we're going to talk about it today, too. We are going through a massive shift in how we're going to look at security as a result of this. It is way too easy from a security standpoint to stand up shadow IT right now. But that's excellent for companies yeah. in the short term. Right. It's excellent for, quote, unquote, productivity in the short term. Right. So, and I think this trend is going to continue, and it's probably going to get uglier before it gets better. Uh, it was the, the trend certainly seems to be slanted in, in that direction, yes. Absolutely. And the only way I know to fight this is really, really strong culture, where you know, your security team has to be deeply integrated into all the different groups and be approachable and be useful and reasonable and helpful. And facilitative, and, right, yes. Yeah. Um, and and you know have executives really buy into that? Yeah, I I I honestly think you know we we as security people. And I know what I know. I mentioned this on the on the past show, and but I, I this is this is an example where I I think we really have to get much more attuned to the the the, the drivers 
behind cloud, behind the push to cloud, right? And figure out kind of like how cloud is revolutionizing how IT works. Uh-huh. We've got to revolutionize how security is done. I don't know what that means, right? right? But I don't know that, you know, the the traditional model of, of InfoSec and, you know, f- and, uh, you know, firewalls and analysis and all that crap is is kind of incompatible with you know with this whole concept and and so we've got to we've got to figure that out and if we don't figure it out this is going to be the result yep and, and and the challenge there is that not only do we need to figure it out and adapt but we've got to do both at the same time we've got to continue doing what we're doing today and somehow do double duty to figure out that model too right because both are going to exist. That orchid farm looks r- really attractive right now. <laughs> I, I think this is going to be a topic on this show for years to come. Because oh, I yeah. think yeah. I think we're just at the, at the tip of the iceberg on this. I think this is the start of this transition. Absolutely. And, you know, this was this was sort of the concept way back in the day that they that you know Microsoft pitched was every computer can be its own server. Bob in accounting does, can be part of IT now, right? And Susie in marketing can set up her own SharePoint server, right? And share information. We're now extending that to the cloud. Yeah. But the scary part is, we we facilitated this concept of self service of IT inside the firewall. Now this concept is being perpetuated raw on the internet. Well, right, because I think I think there's there's a there's a lot of simultaneous changes happening, right? We're we're mm-hmm. you know we're we're also moving towards the concept of of zero trust, right? Well, you know, once, once you th- those those two concepts of of self enablement and zero trust, I'm not going to say they're incompatible. I think they're incompatible as they exist today, in 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 large measure. So it's almost like as data is created, that's where you're going to have to dis- secure it with really strong rights management or something. Yep. I, I, I don't think that's the answer, but it's something like that. <laughs> it, it's, yeah. Anyway, we should get on to our last story. All right. So, uh, story. so, yeah. so this actually kind of fits very well. The, yeah. The, the last story we have, uh, is, this is actually the next episode in the, uh, the, the, the thing we talked about last time from Securosis. Uh, they're they're doing this series on the the fundamental changes in IT, in, in particular moving uh, into cloud. And the title of this this week's uh, post is "Title Forces: Endpoints Are Different, More Secure, Less Open." And you know, when you read it, when you read through this, hopefully none of these points are like you know earth shattering, right? But when you think about them. All together, it's it's a really interesting picture that we're going to have to kind of rationalize. And, and so, the point is, as you know, as knowledge workers—I mean, not even as IT people, but just as knowledge workers—most people uh, spend a lot more time with their phone and their iPad or you know tablet than they do with a traditional PC. And and they point out that. You know, there was, uh, in, in 2016, there were 260 million PCs shipped compared to 1.5 billion smartphones shipped. And and they say that in 2017, 
the expectation is there'll be more Apple operating systems than Windows installations, which is a huge, I mean, that's a... Yeah, that's that's massive. That's massive. And, and that has some pretty interesting implications because, um, you know, as you know, Apple is, um, you know, on, on the one hand, Apple has had, to its credit, a pretty good run of security. Now, now I'm not going to say on Mac OS, right? But, you know, that's that's more, I think, coincidental. But especially in iOS, they've done a pretty good job. That could change tomorrow. Not going to lie, right? right? But their point is, these devices are in, inherently more secure than our PCs, right? And one of the reasons... Well- and that's intuitive because of the fact that they are purpose-built right. machines with limited customization capability. We talk about a PC or an o- with a modern OS. It's meant to be incredibly versatile. Right. It has the full instruction set at any time available to it. Right. <laughs> and any piece of code who knows how to talk to it can talk to it. And, and so <laughs> then they, they, but then they contrast that with the fact that because of you know, basically. Because of what we just mentioned, they're by definition not open platforms, right? And so, in the case of Apple, for instance, they they pick on Apple a lot. Uh, Apple views, you know, the the types of access you would need to run antivirus and other other things like that as a security risk. And so, you're not going right. to get your antivirus uh, on Apple, and you, and that's going to inhibit. You're trusting the OS, correct? To a great degree. Right, so their point, yeah. the, the net, their net point here is that you're going to have, as IT departments, you're going to have devices that are more secure, you know, typically on 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 average than our PCs, um, but you're going to have a lot less insight. Yeah, less control. And and then uh, and then they go on to talk about similarly with networks, you know, the the push to TLS has has made many of the traditional tools go dark yep. unless you're doing men in the middle, you know, and, and that by the Which way is, is about to be a bigger problem because of the push to perfect forward security. Right. Yep. Yeah. Which, uh, which for those who may not know what that is, it's worth looking up, but it's basically a, a type of, I'm going to get yelled at for this. It's a method of configuring TLS so that interception and man in the middle is not possible in, in in theory. So that has great implications on a good side and a bad side. It's good because if somebody can't man in the middle your 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 SSL session, but the bad side is corporate IT can't man in the middle of the session either <laughs> to for to apply anti malware or DLP or whatever it may be. Yeah, uh, I, see, I always thought, and I could be wrong. I always thought perfect forward secrecy was. If you recorded it and you obtain a key from early in the session, you wouldn't be able to, to decrypt. But anyway, I um, could be. I, I'm. Might be right. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm out of my element a little bit there. So. Yeah, I mean, no, you're on the right. Okay, so it's a uh, secure communication protocol which compromise long-term keys do not compromise past sessions. Yes, but somehow that also breaks. Uh, the ability to do the man in the middle. Okay. I mean, I could be... Now I feel stupid. Hang on. Don't worry. I'll edit it out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so this is interesting. I may have some bad info on this. Um, the reason that I that this this was coming up is that I understood this is that you know there's a push to use Diffie Hellman type keys, right? Um, which they make the mayonnaise, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly that's okay. right. Um, which I understood was enabling perfect forward secrecy. But maybe this is two things going on at the same time. Because when you push the Diffie-Hellman for your TLS, it makes interception impossible, mm. is what I understood. Okay. Um, it, it protects you from man-in-the-middle attack. So, so okay. So, full disclosure, I may be screwing this up for everybody on the show, and I'm sorry. So, so you know, my advice is worth exactly what you pay for it. So, do your own research on this. But the way, the reason I was looking at this is because, you know, in, in terms of like a WAF or in terms of, of like a proxy, a reverse proxy, um, you know, when 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 you do uh, Diffie-Hellman keys, you blind that technology because it can't unless you're terminating the connection at that point um, and then re-encrypting back to whatever the, the browser or the, the server is in essence you can't intercept it on your security technologies with the Diffie Hellman key now for some reason I thought that was called perfect forward secrecy and I may be mixing up a couple of things here okay but the point still stands yeah. we're moving to a technology that's very very difficult to inspect with with security technology unless you terminate at that device and re-encrypt as a as a port uh, as opposed to uh, just decrypting and letting it re-encrypt and go on. Yeah. Now, I, I will also tell you, in addition to being difficult, right, not not, not to mention, by the way, well, I'll, I'll, there's, a, there's a few things, right? There, there is a, a fundamental problem a lot of IT people have with, with this. There, there, if, you were, if you were to think of, like, Venn diagram-wise, you know, the, 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 the Uber privacy people and information security people right there's a big overlap right right and we, so we, we get a lot of feedback when we talk about this because a lot of people are like why are you inspecting corporate traffic anyway you shouldn't be doing that right right yeah yeah and it's, and it's unethical but uh, okay but look at it from a security technology standpoint all this technology we've wrapped into network inspection gets blinded with tls right and so so your your um your dlp right can't see mm -hmm. inside a tls tunnel right and, and so that's a that's a problem if you and in certain environments regulatorily that's a problem right now yeah. but there's a there is a technical and this, i had some good discussions with with some people about this there are other problems that uh that don't come up here right because uh in in line with all of this push to the cloud and to SaaS and whatnot where do you perform that at now, right? Right. That's so, a great point. So, so you know, in in the traditional model of where you had, you know, your data center was in the next room, your people were in this room, you know, you had an internet connection coming into your building, and you could, you know, you had a you had a clean place to look at that. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And and so yeah, but I guess there's still a, a kind of a throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? You know where are your users that's probably where you want to be looking at the traffic so on the way yeah on the way out you know wrapping back to our first point just for a moment uh, about how the endpoints are becoming less open and uh, move to the cloud the other thing that's interesting to me is that even though that the endpoints are more secure there is a security implication of a, of opening up that data to those devices 
in terms of yeah yep. you know you may be exposing the data you may be opening your attack service um, wherever the source of that information is that those devices are, are accessing because always on need to be able to get to it I mean I can't tell you how often I, I talk to executives who have a nice little app on their iPad that gives them real-time data about something that they love and want and they don't want the trouble of standing up a VPN to get to it when they're in front of a customer just make it be there right which is I get it that makes perfect sense from an executive standpoint and you know and that is the way we are going as as an entire industry and as a culture but now that means that there's a security implication that, that that data is now more easily accessible. And how do you, how do you protect it transparently without adding friction to the, to the interaction with that data on the go anywhere, always on simple. <laughs> raise orchids. Yep. Raise orchids. That's right. So, uh, so, so then they move on to some shifts that we're likely to see in the marketplace, which, uh, if, from a vendor perspective, they, they point out that there's going to be a, a very large contraction in consumer anti-malware protection, right? So as, as more of us uh, move to iPads and iPhones and, and fewer lap, you know, Windows 10 laptops, it, um, there's, there's going to be less opportunity for Symantec to get on, you know, or McAfee, or I guess it's Intel now, to get on your your device, right? And they even point out that with Windows 10, you know, antivirus, there's, there's a native antivirus that's, you know, respectable, I guess. It's not, it's not great. Uh, but the, the net point is, this is, this is going to be a market that's going to dry up for, you know, for, for these companies. And so they point out that this is probably why we're seeing some odd acquisitions like Symantec buying LifeLock. Right. You know, they... because that's the default breach response. By the way, is here. Have some credit monitor. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. Though uh, LifeLock is probably the most expensive of the offerings. So, right. I, you know, of all the breaches I've been involved with, I've never been offered LifeLock protection. Nope. Me either. Some. Um, the next one was endpoint security vendors will see some reduction in enterprise sales, and again, a similar. Similar move as as more of these embedded devices become common, and that there'll be less opportunity. Uh, but also as as free tools like OS Query they mentioned specifically uh, you know, gain prominence and maturity, and and also the operating systems themselves are are starting to move into this this place. You know the the traditional. Uh, security companies, enterprise security companies, are going to have less opportunity to sell. And then they, then they basically, the bad news is, you know, for the network box vendors, you know, the firewall, the firewall VPN uh, type IPS type providers, they basically said they're those those guys are in trouble. Well, they'll have to pivot to a different model <laughs> if they can. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what that what that moves to. Um, and then, uh, then they talk about some practice changes related to in, uh, to endpoint security. So they and mentioned this a little bit ago. Security will be harder, or sorry, security will be better, but monitoring will be harder. Right again yeah. for the reasons we talked about. Uh, we won't need it to manage as many endpoint tools. Um, again, because 
uh, presumably we'll will be moving into more of a homogenous type environment, which by the way has its own problems. Right? There's there are there are some problems with that. We'll move to zero trust networks, which um if you're not familiar with zero trust networks, there's there's a lot um not a, a ton written, but there's there's some stuff written. I think this is definitely something to to brush up on if you're not familiar with it. Understand what it is and 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 start thinking about it. And then uh, and then also we will use cloud based uh, use more cloud based network monitoring and filtering. Um, I not to be candid, I don't understand how that works. Are you implying you haven't been candid up until this point? Yes. I've been lying. Well, I, time. I, the way I read that is that cloud providers will offer that as add-on services in some way, shape, or form. Right. But, built into their technology. But built into what technology? Well, to to the cloud, the magic cloud. <laughs> no, I, okay, so, so you want DLP. Okay, that's a module you can add on to whatever container you're spinning up that's processing information, and that's so that DLP is looking past the decryption point on the way in. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that's that's what the intention is, but you know, again, if you're if if the assumption is that each Look, each of these endpoints is kind of an island, marketers are going to market, man. If, if well, there's you're right. if there's if, you're right about <laughs> that. If there's a business model, they'll they'll offer it. Now, whether it's good or not, it's a different question. I just I, I what I don't understand about this point is how you get all of the the traffic that needs to be inspected to go through this through the cloud service. That's what I don't understand. And, and so maybe well, it, you end up with. To, I mean, it would have to be where the data lives. Right, but but sometimes the data is going to live on your phone. And, well, yeah. So. I, I see what you're saying. So I was sort of looking at it from a, a data server-centric viewpoint, right? I'm, I'm standing up a server. I'm standing up a data okay. access. So, to, so, so Amazon's going to provide some some kind of DLP for you, right? Right. But that's but that's a kind of a narrow uh, a narrow use case that is. Once again, be... you're implying I'm narrow with my use cases. Well, no, that that use case is narrow. Well, uh, so otherwise, cloud proxy, cloud, I don't know, bounce all your traffic through North Korea, you know. Yeah, that could work. That could work. Well, I, I think I'm I'm at bedrock in this one right now. <laughs> I think I think it's late on a Sunday. And we're both tired, so. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's it for the for this uh, this week. We should be back next week, right? Because I'm not intending to do any crazy stuff with the hosting providers again. So uh, hopefully, hopefully they they weather the storm that is about to come in a few hours. Uh, what all thirty of our listeners? Yeah, downloading over and over and over again. Yes. Uh, so uh, just a reminder, I, I want to thank everybody who has donated to our Patreon campaign. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Uh, and um, if you like the show, give us some love on iTunes, please. That makes you know, makes it all worthwhile to, to wake up in the morning and look at iTunes and see some new reviews, especially if they're good. Um, 
you can uh, send us send us an email if you have any ideas, concerns, comments, feedback, info at defensivesecurity.org. Uh, you can find links to all the stories we talked about today on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks, as always, for listening. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.